Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 63. After a day off last week, we are back at it and a lot to discuss. Brewers get a sweep of a horrible Royals team, but you've got to take care of business against those teams. They did that over the weekend. We can get into the is Yelly back conversation and get set for a big series in St. Louis getting underway tonight. The Packers schedule dropped while we were gone last Thursday. We'll break that down. Some Mason Crosby news, some safety news for the Packers as well. And the Bucks are basically interviewing everybody as both playoff series are now into the Eastern and Western Conference Finals. But a lot of Woj bomb news as it relates to interviewees coming in for the Bucks head coaching job. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's a double and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. On a pinnacle ball, throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, my wife Lindsay and I had a nice little staycation last week, Wednesday through Friday. That's why there was no episode on Friday. We talked about that last Monday. It was good. We basically did what I would describe as a trial run at retirement. And let me tell you, it suits us. It really does suit us. There are some people that I know in my life that would say, oh, why would you want to get retired? I'd be so bored if I was retired. Not me. Not I. We had a great time being retired for three days. It's like when you sign up for a seven-day trial on iTunes or Hulu, and then you have to decide whether you're going to pick it up after that on the month-to-month. I think I'd pick up the option. I would pick it up for $10 a month, for $14.99 a month. I would delve into retirement. But that's what we did. We had plans we put in for the days back in January or February, and I'm sure many of you can relate to the situation that comes up when you do that, and then... Ah, it's January. We're not going to plan for something for May yet. We'll just make sure we have the days off. And then February, ah, it's still a long way away. It's winter. It's going to be nicer then. We'll worry about it then. Then you get to March, and we threw, I threw my wife, Lindsay, a big birthday party that took some planning. I will right, we'll push that off. Get through the birthday party first, then we'll plan the vacation. <laughs> then you just keep on going. And at some point, you get to four days before you have off, and you don't have a flight, and you don't have a hotel, and you don't have a dog sitter. <laughs> so we just decided... We'll do a staycation. We'll hit up some restaurants we've never been to. We'll go to a Brewer Day game, which we did last Wednesday, which was fantastic. We'll just do some stuff around the area. Go golfing. We saw my mom for Mother's Day late last week. We saw her mom for a Brewer game yesterday. But it was nice. We had dinner at 5 o'clock. It's just a casual, it's a really casual atmosphere when you're just off in the middle of the week. Wake up still kind of early, but go for a leisurely stroll with the dog. And I go for a run. Not a big deal, but kind of a big deal. I don't want to be running guy talking about running all the time. 
We did talk about it in the early iteration of this podcast back in month two where I did my first ever half marathon. But typically, I work real early for the morning show, take a nap, have some lunch, take the dog for a walk, and then do my runs in the evening. Well, I got my run out of the way in the afternoon. We were making dinner reservations at 5 o'clock, stealing batteries. It was great. It's a great time. We really enjoyed it. But that's what we were able to do for a few days at the end of last week through the weekend. Hope all the moms out there had a great Mother's Day. Shout out to my mom. Happy Mother's Day a day late. We're still in the window. I had Happy Mother's Day late last week, too. And the phone call on Sunday. I think you are still in the window, right? If you do something today, you've got today, basically, to make up for it if you missed it. Hopefully, everybody at least got a phone call on Mother's Day. But I think if you didn't see your mom or whatever, you don't live that close to each other or whatever the situation is, you still have today. I believe you still have today for a late flower delivery, for a late card delivery. There's the wrapper on Monday. That's still acceptable, I would say. Well, we had a really nice time. Yeah, Wednesday last week, a weekday Brewer game. I have not been to a weekday afternoon Brewer game in so long. We saw the Wade Miley-Clayton Kershaw matchup, which was fun for three innings, and then Kershaw just dominated. And Miley fell apart in that game. One of his worst starts, but he's been so good. Hard to get mad at him and hard to get mad at losing to Clayton Kershaw. But what an atmosphere at Miller Park or at AmFam Field. It could not have been a better weather day. We have been to hundreds I want to say maybe a 1,000. We've been to hundreds of Brewer games at Miller Park and AmFam Field over our time together. And I would put last week Wednesday for that afternoon tilt against the Dodgers, Wednesday afternoon, maybe top five, top three weather days that I've ever had at AmFam Field. It was 67, 68, a nice cool breeze. The roof was open for the first time this year. Blue skies, sunshine, and you did have that weekday afternoon crowd. Nobody's in a rush. Everybody's feeling pretty casual. It was an older crowd. It was really a lot of fun. One of the most fun games that I've been to just in terms of the atmosphere and the temperament of the crowd and the weather. It was great. But that was a part of our staycation last week. All right, let's talk about the Brewers. It wasn't a great series against the Dodgers. They won that opening game, then got spanked in the final two games of that series. But you knew you had this really bad Royals team coming to town Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The Royals and the A's. Man, what a mess. (laughs) That's just a disaster. After the loss yesterday, the Royals are 12-30, and and I'm pretty sure the A's are 9-34. and Just abject failures of teams already this year. We're not even to the – we're just to the middle part of May. But you still have to beat those teams. And you don't just want to win a series. You want to take all three against a team that is playing that poorly. Got the job done on Friday night. Saturday, we were at the ads game. Or we were at the ads game on Friday. We missed Friday's game. We went to the Admirals game. We haven't done that in forever. That was a part of our staycation, too. And if you haven't been to an Admirals game ever or in a long time... We had not been to one probably in 10 years. They were still playing at the Bradley Center the last time we went. Now they're at the Mecca, the U.S. Cellular Arena. It's a much better arena because the Bradley Center was an 18,000-seat venue. And when you have three or 4,000 people at an Admirals game, it feels very empty. Well, the Mecca's a 10,000-seat arena, and they had about 4,500 there on Friday night or Saturday night. And it felt pretty good. Felt half full. Very exciting. Ads got a win in round two of the AHL playoffs. So we missed that. But Yelly had a couple of home runs on Saturday. One to dead center off the scoreboard. And then one to tie the game at three. They ultimately won on the Joey Weimer sack fly. That set up Sunday. We went with her folks on Sunday for Mother's Day. Again, a really fun atmosphere. It was rainy. The roof was closed. But it was a really fun atmosphere on Sunday afternoon. And they got down early. Colin Ray... 
He's struggling. He's not it. He is not it. I know after his first start, I was optimistic. When he was called up after the Woodruff injury, he came up for that start in San Diego, and he went five and two-thirds of one run ball. And I think we said on the podcast, it must have been a Thursday game, maybe it was a Friday morning podcast, that I felt okay about him just because of the way he was pitching. You think back to last year, and when they had those starting pitching injuries, we saw so many starts from Jason Alexander and Chichi Gonzalez and career minor leaguers that just didn't have it. My feeling after the initial Colin Ray start was, okay, we can maybe bridge this for a while because he was throwing 94-95. He had better velocity than those guys last year. Seemed that he had some more movement on his pitches. But as is often the case with pitchers like Jason Alexander, like Chichi Gonzalez, like Colin Ray, there's a reason they are career minor leaguers in their early to mid-30s. And we're starting to see that. He just doesn't have the pinpoint control. He leaves a lot of stuff over the middle of the plate. And even bad hitters on bad teams like the Royals, if you leave 92-93 middle-middle, they're going to hit it and hit it hard somewhere. And that's what happened early in the game yesterday. And he just has not been that good since that first start against San Diego. Now, look, they don't have a lot of options. The problems are similar to what they were last year and that you just don't have the horses in AAA or AA right now that you could call up young up-and-coming pitchers. The one guy they have is Gosser, the one remaining chip that came back in the hater trade. For whatever reason, doesn't seem like they want to pull the trigger on that. Maybe he's not quite ready for the big stage yet. He just got the call up to AAA at the end of last year and started there this year. Maybe that's a part of it. Timing could be a part of it. Colin Ray does have major league experience, even though it hasn't been great and the numbers haven't been great. You lean on that a little bit, but he's not it. He's not the guy. And he's just kind of showing that the more that we see him, hopefully you can get enough from him like yesterday where he sort of keeps you in a game and then the offense gets hot and you can win a game where he starts like they did on Sunday. But you've got to find a way to get from now until at least the 4th of July, it sounds like, without Woodruff. I don't know if there are better options out there. Somebody you could sign, somebody you could trade for to fill that gap, or if they're just going to try to squeeze whatever toothpaste they can out of the Colin Ray tube and see if it's enough to get you a couple of wins here and there to bridge that gap until Woodruff comes back. But he's not the, he's not it. Luckily, Jordan Lyles is also not it, and he was on the other side for the Royals on Sunday, and the Brewers were able to turn a 4-1 deficit in the third inning into an 8-4 lead. or seven. Yeah, 8-4 lead. It was a seven-run third inning. And it was highlighted again by Christian Yelich. Got an RBI single in that inning. He started the game with a home run. Three of his last four at-bats. Big home runs. That got the Brewers on the board to start the day. Do you want to have the Christian Yelich's back discourse? Because I saw it all over Twitter. After that home run in the first inning yesterday, three of his four last four at-bats have been home runs. And we got the Wedding Crashers. He's back. He's back. Is he back? <laughs> Is he, though? I don't know if I want to dive into that. I said early this year, or maybe it was even late last year, when he was on one of these runs. He's had these in the past. We've done this before. From 2018, 2018 MVP. 2019 should have been an MVP, but had the last month of his year gone because of the broken kneecap. And then basically every year since then, we've been searching for these little tidbits that we can put together and say, oh, maybe he's going to be back to that form. 2020, the pandemic-shortened year. He hit for some power, but hit, what, 210? It was a small sample size, though. It was only a 60-game schedule. Okay, it's a small sample size. He'll be better next year. And then he was even worse in 2021. In 2022 last year, he showed some signs when they moved him to that leadoff spot. But ultimately, it was another pretty pedestrian year from a guy that you're paying 25 or $26 million a year to because of the numbers he put up in 2018 and 2019, which I don't begrudge the Brewers for. We've been over this in the past. 
you can have revisionist history if you want, but there wasn't a Brewer fan on planet Earth when he signed that contract extension after 2019 that wasn't geeked about the fact that they got him. And for what we thought at the time was a low amount of money based on the production we saw the two years he was in Milwaukee. It was a no-brainer to sign him to that long-term deal. Nobody could have forecasted what was to come after that. But we have been doing this now for three years and some of this year where he'll show you like he did this weekend on Saturday and Sunday. He'll give you these little spurts of two or three games or a week or two where he looks like 2018, 2019 Yelly. But I don't know that anybody can declare him back. And a lot of the he's back stuff is all tongue in cheek. But some people, and I do want to believe, and some people do believe that maybe this is the sign that we're going to see more of what we saw from him in his first two years in Milwaukee. But in my mind, you have to do this for the full year. We're not going to be able to say he's back until we get through a full season where he's hitting 270, 280, 290. He hits 20-plus home runs, knocks in 80 or 90 runs. You know, we're not going to know until the end of the year, so I don't know what good it is, what kind of an exercise it is to do this every time he has two or three games where he looks great and then goes over four the next night, goes over five the next night, one for five the night after that. But it is fun. When he makes an appearance, it is fun. We'll see how long he sticks around this time. The month of May has been pretty good. He's batting 356 in the month of May with a, an OPS over 1,000, four home runs now. But in particular, Saturday and Sunday, he looked great. And he was right in the middle of things in that seven-run third inning where he had the RBI single, then he steals second, puts the pressure on the defense. They throw it into center field. He goes to third. The center fielder throws it past the third baseman, five holes him, and then Yelly comes home. What an exciting moment that was with the ball going all over the place. You could almost hear yakety sacks in the background while that was going down. That was peak Royals, but that was also the Yelly that we're used to seeing. Hit a home run early, caused chaos on the base pads, manufacture runs. He was looking like 2018-2019 Yelly over the weekend. But that third inning gets them in front. They victimize Jordan Lyles, get him out of the game in the third or fourth inning. It is remarkable when you think back to Jordan Lyles in Milwaukee. His whole career, he's been a mess. He's pitched a lot at the major league level. He's had some 500 years with ERAs in the mid fours, low fives. But think back to that 2019 run with the Brewers. How did that happen? One of the great mysteries of baseball. They acquire him at the deadline. He had terrible numbers coming to Milwaukee. Then over 11 starts in 2019, Jordan Lyles goes 7-1 and one with a 2.45 ERA. And he left after that year and had an ERA in the low fives wherever he went, Baltimore, Texas, and he's just not been the same since, and he was never that guy before it either. When you look at his stats on ESPN, if you click on career stats, you've got to wonder, one of the great mysteries of baseball in the last 10 years is how Jordan Lyles was a borderline Cy Young candidate the second half of 2019 in Milwaukee, and he was never that guy again. 7-1 and one with a 2.45 ERA. But they got after him. He takes the loss yesterday. He's 0-7 on the year for the Royals. But him being on the mound allowed for the Brewers to make up for Colin Ray's rough outing. Eric Lauer came in out of the bullpen. They demoted him to the bullpen. It sounds like he'll be back in the rotation at some point, but he has been scuffling. It was a great spot for him to get in the game, and he took it to the finish line. He goes five and a third, gave up a couple of home runs in the ninth inning, maybe running on fumes a bit at the end of that game. But five and a third, two runs given up. He gets the win. He's four and four. Pretty encouraging spot from him coming out of the bullpen. And the Brewers get the 9-6 to six win, and they get the sweep, which you absolutely need against the really bad teams. They've got a three-game set coming up with Oakland at home, not that far off. You want to get all three there, too. In baseball, it's rare where you go into a series thinking, we need to get a sweep. You always just want to win series. Just win a series, and you feel pretty good about moving forward after a series win. 
But there are those matchups, and this year it's the Royals and the A's, where if you get them at home, you want all three. And they got all three. It's helped stabilize the May schedule a bit. They had that 18 and 10 April, fantastic April. They are 5 and 7 now in the month of May, and they are 23 and 17. The Pirates have fallen apart. The Brewers make up two games over the weekend. So right now, the Brewers have a game and a half lead in the NL Central and two better on the lost column. And we'll see if Yelly can continue it tonight. It would be great to see in St. Louis. This is a big series to me. And we talked about this when they played St. Louis at AmFam Field earlier in the year. With the way the scheduling works now and you don't play your division rivals the way you did 18 or 19 times in prior years. Now it's 12 times or 13 times. They're that much more important. The impact of these division matchups are that much more important. And I realize the Brewers right now are in first place and the Cardinals are in last place and the Cardinals have the worst record in the National League. But they're starting to get it together. They've won three in a row. They are 6-4 and four in their last 10. We talked about this last Monday. You just know it's coming. You just know it is the Cardinals' dark magic. This is a team that won the division last year, won 90-plus games. And the biggest change they had was Yadier Molina retiring. Pujols retired. How big that is for them when he had a negative war last year, I don't know. Molina has been a major loss, as expected, even though he was more of a part-time catcher last year. They signed Wilson Contreras, and the reports from St. Louis are that he's just not as good with the pitching staff, which, how could he be? Yadier Molina is and was a generational talent behind the dish. And it's pretty clear, at least the reports indicate, it's pretty clear that they leaned so heavily, not just the pitchers, but the coaching staff on Yadier Molina leading that rotation, making the calls at home plate. Even when you bring in a guy like Contreras, who is a World Series champion catcher in Chicago in 2016, a starting catcher on an all-star team last year, right? He's a talented, as talented a guy as that was on the free agent market in the offseason. It shows you how good Molina is that you bring in a guy like Contreras and the staff has suffered that much in the transition from Molina to Contreras. That's a big part of their early season scuffling, it sounds like. But they are still loaded. It's basically the same team. They've still got Goldschmidt in the middle of that order. They've still got Nolan Arenado in the middle of that order. They've still got Jack Flaherty. The starting pitching numbers are awful, and maybe Contreras is a part of that, but they've still got Flaherty. Wainwright, who we thought was going to retire, but he lied about that. <laughs> He's a liar, and I knew I knew that wasn't all going to happen at the end of last year. When my wife and I went to St. Louis over Memorial Day weekend last year, and we saw all these Cardinals fans traipsing around town with their last year, with their T-shirt, with the Wainwrights, Molina and Pujols graphic last year for the big three. They were all going to retire. You just knew they weren't all going to retire. Wainwright's still there. Jordan Montgomery, who's going to pitch in this series, who owned the Brewers at the end of last year, he's still there. They are loaded. And if you're a Cardinal fan, as frustrating as the beginning of this year has been, you have to know in the back of your mind, rooting for that team, that they'll get it together by the time it matters, by the time you get to the 4th of July and the trade deadline last few months of the year. They are still probably the most talented team in the division, and the deficit for them right now is only seven and a half games. It's so early in the year. If I'm a Cardinal fan, I'm thinking, all right, we won three in a row. We're six and four in our last ten. We have the most talent in the division, and we're only seven and a half games back, and we couldn't have played any worse over the course of the first month and a half. And now they look at this as a major opportunity. You win this series, or from their perspective, if you sweep the Brewers, you're right back in it. You're four games back or four and a half games back by the end of this series. That's why it's a big series for the Brewers. The Brewers are stabilizing a bit, but this is another chance, like the series early in the year, to get a series from St. Louis and give yourself some space. The Brewers did win that series against St. Louis at AmFam Field early in the year. Hopefully they can do that again this time around. 
Going to be tough. You've got Freddie Peralta on the hill tonight. He'll take on Jack Flaherty, a 645 first pitch. What are all the pitching matchups for this series? Tomorrow, 645, Wade Miley and the aforementioned Jordan Montgomery. And then you've got a big duel on Wednesday, Corbin Burns and Adam Wainwright. All 645 start times. This is a tough road trip. It's a six-gamer. You've got the division matchup with St. Louis starting tonight. Then the best team in baseball record-wise, the Tampa Bay Rays. After a day off on Thursday, you're in Tampa Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then you come home, but you take on the defending world champions, the Houston Astros, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week. It's a, a rough stretch of schedule for the Brewers, no doubt about it. But it gets started in St. Louis tonight, a 645 first pitch. Moving over to the NFL. As we talked about, schedule release for the Packers. Anything surprise you about it? I'll tell you what did surprise me outside of the Packer part of it. The schedule starting, the NFL schedule starting with that marquee game, that first Thursday night game, all eyes on the NFL, and it is the defending champion, Kansas City Chiefs, that's not surprising, taking on at home the Detroit Lions. Surprised, Eddie? <laughs> If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now. It is so hard still to wrap my mind around the fact that the Lions are the betting favorites to win the NFC North. And it's clear if you look at the way they played last year and the talent they have on the team and the additions they've made, they probably are the favorites for the division. That's hard enough to wrap my mind around, but now you've got them in that marquee primetime NFL season opening matchup. Wow. What a world. What a world to live in. Chiefs and Lions opening the year on Thursday. You've got Rodgers in prime time with the Bills on Sunday night, that opening weekend. The Packers have two on the road to open their schedule. They'll be in Chicago, big rivalry game, 325 kickoff on September 10th. Then in Atlanta, noon start time on the 17th. The home opener is the 24th against New Orleans. I guess I am a little surprised at five primetime games and the Thanksgiving Day game. I figured, like a lot of Packer fans, with Aaron Rodgers no longer on the team, you wouldn't see as many primetime games. But even in a transition year, and I'm not calling it a rebuild year, that's another week we've gone now on Twitter where that's a massive debate on Packers Twitter. Is it a rebuild or a reload or a renovation or a transition? So many different words being tossed around what this year could potentially be for the Packers. I don't think it is a rebuild. A rebuild to me is ripping it to the studs and starting from scratch or even just demoing the whole house, bulldozing the whole building and starting again. It doesn't feel like that's what they're doing. I realize you're moving on from a four-time MVP Hall of Fame quarterback and you're putting in a quarterback who has three years on the bench but who we don't really know as a starting quarterback. And it's the most important position not only in football but maybe in all of sports, you could argue, the starting quarterback of an NFL team. So you're moving on from one of the biggest parts of your most recent 10 to 12 to 15 year run of success. But you do have things on this team. They do have pieces. The defense I know has been such a letdown, but you've got the highest paid corner in the league. You've got all the first round draft pick capital invested on that side of the football. You've got two running backs who you know are solid. Aaron Jones, a pro bowler who has 60 career touchdowns. A.J. Dillon behind an offensive line that you're pretty confident in. Christian Watson when he's healthy. We saw his rookie year. He's got the afterburners. If he can make the route running a bit more concise and develop the chemistry with Jordan Love, he seems to be an ascending wide receiver. Romeo Dobbs seems to be an ascending wide receiver. We'll see how the new parts they drafted this year work into that or if Samari Toure can make a name for himself and how the tight ends all work. But it doesn't feel like a total rip-down rebuild. 
the two most important rooms in any house to me are the kitchen and the bathroom. And they are joined at the hip, the kitchen and the bathroom. If you want to say they're renovating full renovation, kitchen and bathroom, fine. But I just don't see it as a total rebuild. I don't see this as you're walking into a hoarder house here and you are got the walls falling in with asbestos and there's black mold. And you say, all right, we got to just totally run this place over, do some kind of chemical decontamination and start again. That, to me, is a rebuild. I don't think we're doing a rebuild. But I thought with Aaron Rodgers gone and the move to Jordan Love that we would have fewer primetime games. But the Packers remain, even in a transition year or whatever you want to call it, they are going to remain a big ratings draw because Packer fans are always going to watch the games and have proven that even when the team has not been good. And there is going to be some curiosity around what kind of quarterback and what kind of team this is with Jordan Love as the starting quarterback. For that reason, they still have five primetime games. Thursday night in week four at home against Detroit. The next Monday, it's the matchup with Devontae in Las Vegas before the bye week. Then you've got Sunday night, December 3rd, at home against Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes. The following Monday night, you're at New York. And then what's the last primetime game? Oh, New Year's Eve. I don't love that. Is college football, will the Luke Fickle Badgers be playing on New Year's Eve? Is that still, is the college football playoff still going to be on New Year's Eve with the NFL playing on New Year's Eve? I'd have to take a look at what the schedule is for college football this upcoming year. I would find it hard to believe that the college football playoffs are going to go head-to-head with the NFL on an NFL Sunday. But for New Year's Eve plans, Packers will be in Minnesota on Sunday Night Football at 7.20. But five primetime games. Now, the balance of this is there are eight noon games. For those Packer fans that have been craving noon games, and I consider myself one of them at this point in my life, you just don't get a lot of them when you've got Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers and Super Bowl contending teams and division title contending teams. You're just not going to get a lot of noon kickoffs. Even when they weren't on prime time, more often than not, it felt like the Packers were that 3.30, 3.25 kickoff or 3.05 kickoff. You'd have to go back and look at last year. How many noon games? I would guess two noon games last year. Oh, it doesn't have the times if you click on last year's schedule. I'd have to go back and look at the beginning of the year last year and see how many noon games were on there. But I like the balance. I like the five primetime games. Shows you there's still some cachet in this franchise. Cachet up the yin-yang, baby. There's still some cachet, even with a new quarterback, and really not knowing how the team is going to play out. But then you also get that hedge of, I'll give him a bunch of noon games too. Eight noon games will be a sight for sore Packer fan eyes for those for those that have been craving more noon games on the schedule. I remember my buddy Pat and I went to a Packer game. It must have been pre-pandemic, and it was a 3.30 kickoff, which I still say if you're going to the game – is the best time because you can get there at about noon, plenty of time to tailgate. You're still home late, but it's not crazy late. You're getting home at probably 9, 8.30, 9, 9.30, somewhere in there. It doesn't totally ruin your Monday if you're working early on Monday morning. I think that's the best time to go to a game, a 3.30 kickoff. But I remember we were parking, getting set to tailgate, and there was an old-timer who was parking us wherever we ended up parking and we got out of the car and paid him. And he said something to the effect of, man, these primetime games are just brutal. Just brutal to be out here this late. And it was a 3.30 kickoff. I, was, I thought, sir, this is not a primetime game. It's a 3.30 kickoff. But for that age group or maybe or just those fans that want more noon start times, he was a guy you could tell would be ecstatic to have eight noon games on the schedule. Well, you've got a bunch of noon games on the schedule. 
Do you want to do the thing where you go through all the games and say win or loss? If I look at the schedule just based on last year's records and what you expect from the teams they're facing this year, obviously you don't know until you get into the season. You see how these teams perform, and some are going to outpace expectations, and some are going to underpace expectations. You always have a few surprise teams and a few teams you thought were going to be really good that turn out to be a 500 or worse team. So it's hard to do this in May, but just looking at it, we'll do it anyway. (laughs) Just looking at it. I'll say what I said either last week or the week before. If Jordan Love is the guy, and again, that's all that matters, whether they win four games this year or ten games this year, make the playoffs, miss the playoffs, compete for the division, don't compete for the division, the only thing that matters coming out of this year is the franchise knowing, is Jordan Love the guy? Is he going to be the guy going forward? And if Jordan Love is the guy, and we see it early in the year, and things break their way injury-wise, just looking at the schedule – I could see this team winning nine games, nine, ten games at the high end and competing for a wild card spot, maybe a division title, depending on do the Lions, is there too much enthusiasm behind them now? And they struggle out of the gate with a target on their back. You know, you never know how that kind of stuff is going to play out. Would ten wins do nine, would a nine or ten win season put you in contention for the division? It's hard to predict that. But just based on the schedule, I would say if everything goes their way, Eight, nine, ten wins somewhere in there. Vegas has them at seven and a half. I think I could see them nine to ten wins on the high side, competing for and probably getting a wild card spot now that seven teams get in. But we'll see how it shakes down. Again, the only thing that matters is are we going to know or feel comfortable with Jordan Love going forward, giving him an extension possibly in the offseason? That's the only green check mark that matters coming out of this year. But if everything goes their way and Watson takes a step forward and Jones and Dylan are healthy and the offensive line is fairly healthy, the defense can't get a whole lot worse, right? <laughs> They've invested more draft capital there. If they can live up to expectations to some level, just based on the way the schedule looks, you get the early bye week. I do think they could threaten 9 to 10 wins and threaten for a wild card spot. And maybe 10 wins does get you a run at the division. But I could see that happening if Jordan Love is the guy. But the schedule did come out last week. That is on our website if you want to check out more on that. We did get a bit of news who was the safety they signed that's married to Simone Biles? <laughs> Jonathan Owens? I think it's a pretty savvy little signing. Yeah, they signed Jonathan Owens. This is further proof that they're probably moving on from Adrian Amos. They signed Jonathan Owens. Safety from Houston started every game in Houston last year. He's 27 years old. He will compete for a starting safety spot on this team. The side note with Jonathan Owens is that he's married to arguably one of the best athletes in the last 20 years. Olympic gold medalist, Simone Biles. And when Simone put on her Twitter feed, because she has way more followers than Jonathan Owens does on TikTok, on Instagram, and on Twitter, she's a much bigger celebrity. When she posted on her page a picture of her and Owens decked out in Packer gear at Lambeau Field signing that contract, she tagged it and said, looking for recommendations for food, for whatever in the Green Bay area since we're going to be there this year. And Molly Crosby, Mason Crosby's wife, replied to that tweet, essentially saying, we just wrapped up a 16-year run there, unfortunately, but here are the places that I learned about, the places that we like to go to. That's the first word we've heard from really either Crosby's camp or the Packer camp. They are going to move on from Mason Crosby. It has always felt like they are moving in that direction, especially drafting Carlson in the sixth round this year out of Auburn. You would think they'll bring in a veteran to compete with him and see who wins out in camp. They may even bring in a third kicker during the course of training camp in the preseason to find out who their guy is going to be. But 
all offseason, any time the topic has been broached with Goody or anyone in the Packer hierarchy, they've sort of just said, well, I wouldn't close the door on anything just yet. Just making sure the window of the door is open a little bit. But that post by Molly Crosby seems to be pretty final. It seems like they believe that this franchise has moved on. And if that's the case, it's unfortunate. I remember when Mason Crosby started in the NFL, we had him on the air his first three years. We did a post-game and a pre-game interview with him. We aired it on Fridays heading into the weekend. And then whether it was a Sunday or Monday game, we'd chat with him the morning after about the game. And he could not have been a better guy. He came to Sheboygan to record a bunch of liners for that segment. So I did get to know him in the early part of his career. And clearly, he's the Packers' all-time leading scorer. He's a mortal lock for the Packers' Hall of Fame. He had a few down years in there, but more often than not, it was something that you could rely on, which kicking in the NFL, if he's not going to be here this year, we're probably going to learn that lesson this year, Packer fans, is not something that you can rely on with every kicker, but he was very reliable. And you think of all the big kicks, the game-winning kicks. When I think Mason Crosby, I think of that division round game in Dallas in 2016, the run the table year before the NFC Championship game in Atlanta. And he had that massive, whatever it was, 52, 53 yarder to tie it and send it to overtime. And then it was in overtime, the play after, or was it late in regulation? Did that game go to overtime? Maybe not. It might have been with a minute or so left, he hits that game-tying field goal. And then they had that play, Rodgers to Jared Cook, where they drew it up on the turf. And then Jared Cook was somehow able to get his tippy toes down and set up a 55 or 56-yarder to win. And I'll never forget that kick right off of his foot. Looked like it was going to go slice left. And then somehow, inside an indoor stadium... He put the right spin on it or whatever, and it spun back in and just tucked in that left upright. But he had so many big game-winning kicks. His first game in the NFL was a game-winning kick against Philadelphia in 2007 at Lambeau Field. We talked to him the next morning. But I always think of that game, the two 50-plus yarders, one to tie and one to win. He had the big kick in San Francisco a few years ago or two years ago. That was also a 50-ish yarder. He just was a joy to watch. And again, I think Packer fans, myself included, like a lot of franchises that have that kind of a kicker that is there for 15, 16, 17 years, like the Lions with Jason Hansen, or you think of Gary Anderson or Morton Anderson back in the day. When you lose that kicker or you move on from that kicker, it's going to be a hard lesson that not every kicker is that reliable over the long haul. But what a career he's had if it's in fact over, and it does look like it's over with that post coming over the weekend as well. And then real quick, let's touch on the Bucks. The NBA is on to the conference finals. Boston did to Philly what they did to Milwaukee last year when they were down 3-2. They win game six on the road and then win game seven in Boston, resounding fashion. Jason Tatum had 51 points. Joel Embiid was kind of poking fun at Giannis in the postgame presser, talking about the same stuff that Giannis was after the loss to Jimmy Butler in the heat, about steps to success, and it's not a failure, but he was sort of laughing about it. I mean, Joel Embiid. Giannis, when he says that, even though some people thought it was cheesy and some people thought it was great, Giannis has the championship collateral to say something like that. He has a ring. He has a finals MVP, defensive player of the year, two MVPs. Now, Embiid as the MVP got that this year, but those kinds of comments after major losses, if you have a ring, some people will find them endearing. Without a ring, losing in the second round and the way he was delivering that line, very annoying. And Giannis seems to be getting annoyed on Twitter. He had that post late last week about him getting set before a game, and he said he was tired of the disrespect, I'm coming. He had that post. And then ESPN 
put up video on their Twitter page of Embiid sort of half laughing and paraphrasing Giannis after the game yesterday in Boston. And SportsCenter put a post up with the crying face or the laughing face emoji with that video of Embiid saying that. And Giannis just tagged at SportsCenter and said, what's funny, ESPN? I think I'm ready for villain Giannis. It feels like maybe it's a little contrived, but I'm ready. I am ready for villain angry Giannis. But Boston does move on now. They take on Jimmy Butler in the heat. I guess I want to amend something I said last Monday. I said last Monday that it was posed to me on the B93 text line, if the Heat make the finals or they make a championship run, do I feel better about it? And my answer was one word, no. If the Heat somehow get past the Celtics, because all year it looked like it was the Bucks and Celtics on this collision course in the Eastern Conference Finals, and of course the Bucks suffer one of the more embarrassing defeats in the opening round of the NBA playoffs, but now that the Celtics are there, as expected, and the Heat are there, not as expected, if Jimmy Butler wills that team past the Celtics without home court, I think I do feel a little bit better. I think there is a part of me that feels a little bit better if that's what happens. Because it just felt like Bucks and Celtics all year. That was the matchup we were all counting down the days to, and it never happened. But if the team that beat the Bucks also beats the Celtics... I do think I can take 3% solace in that. 3%, maybe 5. 5%, no more than 5%. But that is set. That's a rematch of last year when the Heat were the one seed taking on the Celtics. And then in the Western or in the East, yeah, on the Western Conference, you've got LeBron and Anthony Davis and the Lakers taking on the Joker and the Nuggets. Are we headed to a Boston LA final? We might be. We might be headed to the NBA finals of Boston LA. That's the dream if you're in the NBA. That's the marketing dream. Two heritage programs, two heritage franchises that have met so many times in the finals before. You'd have LeBron versus Tatum. Yeah, that would be a marketing dream. That's a marketing layup. But those are set. The Bucks are interviewing everybody. They said it was going to be an everybody situation. They interviewed Kenny Atkinson, who is an assistant in Golden State, who was the head coach in Brooklyn. A lot of Bucks fans were excited about that, maybe because of the Golden State connection. That does not move the needle for me at all. They interviewed Scott Brooks, who I guess is an assistant in Portland. Remember, Scott Brooks is the head coach in OKC when they had young Harden and young Durant and young Westbrook and they couldn't get to the mountaintop. Then he went to Washington for a while. I don't see that as an upgrade at all. They interviewed him. They interviewed Mark Jackson, who was with the Warriors before they broke out under Steve Kerr. He's been doing TV for ABC and ESPN for forever now. That doesn't move the needle for me at all. There is the interesting name of Monty Williams now that's out there. The Suns fire him. God, the Suns gave up so much to get Kevin Durant. They gave up everything to pair him with Booker and Chris Paul and DeAndre. And even they were out in the second round. They fire Monty Williams. One name that has surfaced as a potential replacement for Monty in Phoenix is Mike Budenholzer. Could you imagine? Could you imagine those two just swapping the 2021 finals? Monty ends up in Milwaukee and Budenholzer goes to Phoenix. But that name is out there. That also does nothing for me. There were rumors of Doc Rivers. It sounds like he's staying in Philly after last night's game. That's what he said at the end of the game. I guess that's sort of up to Philly whether or not he's going to stay there. He just said he was ready to stay there. That does nothing for me. It is weird as a Bucks fan. We all agree that they had to move on from Budenholzer with the way this year ended. 
But now that we're in the hiring process and the interview process, you compare all of these coaches they're bringing into Budenholzer. And so far, with every interview they've had, my thought has been, ah, Budenholzer's better than him. If we were going to hire him, just hang on to Budenholzer. It's weird. It's just a weird thing that's happening right now with Bucks fans on Twitter, on Facebook, on social media, where we all thought we have to move on from Bud. And I stand by that. But now that we're seeing the interviewees come in, you compare them all to Bud, who was the winningest coach in that five-year window and won a championship, and none of them seem to measure up to Bud. A lot of these names that I see, I think you should have just hung on to Bud if we're going to do that. It's weird. It's just a weird part of this whole process now. It's a massive decision for the franchise, arguably the biggest coaching decision they'll ever have because when they fired Kidd and moved on from Prunty, Budenholzer was the guy. That's who we all wanted. That was the no-brainer choice, and that's who they who they hired. For that reason, I don't think it was that big of a decision because we all knew who the guy was. Now as you're priming yourself for the second half, for villain Giannis's second half of his career, this is probably the biggest coaching decision in franchise history. So far, I don't know that any of the names they brought in get me excited. I think this is all due diligence. At the end of the day, my feeling is that Tyron Lue is probably going to be the guy, and that's the guy they're targeting. How that will work with compensation from L.A., I have no idea. Tyron Lue does get me going a little bit. I think it does for most fans. He's got the title that he got with LeBron. He's won when he's had healthy players in Cleveland and in L.A. He would be a guy that I think does move the needle for Bucks fans, but it's a pretty short list of guys that do that that are actually thought of or perceived as better than Bud by the Bucks franchise. We'll see what they do, but they are they are doing they've already had six or seven interviews, it feels like, as they move toward naming that next head coach. But my feeling is right now, if you had to bet on it, which I do love to do, my bet would be it's gonna be Tyron Luke. But we'll see. All right, that'll do it for us here. We'll be back after it on Friday, hopefully recapping a good series in St. Louis for the Brewers. Maybe we'll have more movement on the Bucks' head coaching search. We'll discuss all of that on Friday. Have a good work week. We'll chat with you then.